Well, good morning. Thank you so much again for, for joining with us this morning as we gather around God's word and to give him praise. Um, we're going to be continuing, as, as Jonathan has said, in our series in Revelation. But just before we get there, um, it's amazing, isn't it, how much reputation matters? In all walks of life, rep- reputation is a big deal. It matters a lot. Think of the, the last time you went on holiday or went out for dinner to a new place or was, were getting some work done to the house. Did, did you not check something? Maybe it was the TripAdvisor review, even the ones with the photos. Uh, maybe it was the stars on the Google uh, search that they come back with on their reviews. Or, or maybe you got the name and number from someone to come to your house to do some work from someone who had had something done in their house. And so you know that the person is good and going to do a good job. Reputation matters. And the reputation of churches matters too, doesn't it? I mean, our, our thinking or impression of a church can be massively impacted by what we hear about it or what we know about it. And, and let's be honest, that, that isn't always an edifying experience as we share opinions of churches with others or hear those things. But reputation matters. And there are, there are biblical examples of churches with wonderful reputations, churches that are commended for what they're doing, why they're doing it, how they're doing it. Uh, so, for example, we see this in the letter to the churches in Thessalonians and in Colossians particularly. Paul commends these churches particularly for their faith, their hope, their love. News about them has spread around. They've got a great reputation. But one of the things that we see through those biblical examples of churches that are commended for their reputation is that those churches never sought that reputation. They they didn't go looking for that. They, They were simply focused on the God of the church and on his work in them and through them. And news about that spread, yes, but their focus was on God himself. See, the irony is that, that for, for a church, if, if it tries to attain a good reputation, it ends up missing it. And you can see why. If the focus of a church, and that's us collectively here, if our focus was on the name that we could garner for ourselves, for Gilnerhurk Baptist Church, what do we want to be known for? Let's focus on that. Well, actually, we've missed the point of what it means to be a church, which is to love God, to love his people, to love the people around us. And so if there's a positive reputation that's developed as a byproduct of all that, like we see in the church in Thessalonica and in Colossae, then that's wonderful. But indeed, the, the, the motivation for, for each church, and indeed for us as individual believers in Jesus Christ, the motivation for us should simply be to love God and love people. Love his word. Be led by his spirit and serve as he calls us to. That's, that's the end goal. that's not the means to the better end in our minds of getting a good reputation. We we don't love God and listen to his word so that people think that we're a great church who love the Bible. No, we just listen to his word because it's his word. And the reputation that might come, well, that's not up to us to decide. And equally, that is not our goal. You see, seeking a positive reputation, whatever that might be, in whoever's eyes that might be, is simply yet devastatingly, destructively, a pathway to pride. If we are about creating a name for ourselves as an individual follower of Jesus or as a collective body here as his church, if we're about garnering a name for ourselves, then all we're going to do is puff ourselves up when we think we're doing well. And so it's a pathway to pride. And Jesus has strong words for churches that are seeking and relying upon a good reputation. 
See, there, there, there is a right way then for churches to be conscious of our reputation. Yes, absolutely. We're reflecting Jesus to the world around. Of course, we are to be his ambassadors, his salt and light. Our, our impact in the community around us is, of course, important. But there's a very wrong way to think about a reputation that we may seek. Uh, because if that becomes the focus of our activity, then actually we've, we've slightly missed the point. And as we turn to Revelation 3, we're getting to the fifth church where Jesus writes these letters to you and we see Jesus's message to the church in Sardis a church that has a good reputation but it's a church that has been relying upon that reputation and Jesus wants to show that is incredibly dangerous so can I invite you to turn to Revelation 3 Uh, it's on page 1235 of the the red chair Bibles if that's around or look it up on your device or your own copy of God's word and as you're turning there let me just explain that we're continuing this series in the letters that we find in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation letters from Jesus dictated by Jesus to the apostle Paul or apostle John sorry to be sent to the seven churches and indeed wider than that as his eternal word is sent now to his whole people Uh, and so they the audience for these letters, as Jesus is dictating them, is, yes, the seven churches, but of course he knows that they will spread wider. Indeed, he finishes each one of those letters with the phrase that's on the screen, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is, this is a, a global message from Jesus to his church with looking at these seven churches in particular. And that's led us to, to then call this series, Can You Hear It? Can you hear the message of Jesus? And we want to be a church. We want to be people here who hear what Jesus says and implements what he teaches. We want to be hearers and doers like James 1 would say. And so by the start of chapter 3, we reach the letter to the fifth church, the letter in Sardis. And a little bit like Smyrna and Pergamum, Sardis, is, we're, we only hear of Sardis here in the first three chapters of Revelation. Uh, but Jesus clearly has something to say to his church there and to his church globally, universally, therefore to us. Now, let's listen to this uh, and read this letter to the church in Sardis. Revelation 3, and we're going to read the first six verses. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray as we engage with God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is timeless, it is eternal, it is true, it is useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so we pray, Father, that if we need to hear your rebuking words, you would speak to us and we would hear and do. If we need to hear your correcting words, we would, you would speak those to us, we would hear and do. If we need to hear those training words, those building up, those encouraging words, would you speak them to us and would we hear and do, we pray. Thank you for your word, Father. And speak powerfully by your spirit, we pray. Amen. 
And so as we've noted in some of the other letters that we've looked at before, there's a pattern in how Jesus addresses the churches. Uh, The pattern that we've been thinking about is there's an introduction. Firstly, Jesus introduces himself to the churches. And as he's doing so, he always uses part of the description of the vision that John had of the risen Christ in chapter 1. And so there's an introduction. Then there's something that Jesus knows about the church, either positively or negatively or both or either. Then there's a therefore Jesus knows this about the church, and what does that mean for the church? What must they do? And if they must do that, he also gives them a reason why, a because. Why must you obey and listen to Christ? And then it finishes with the promise to the faithful, the promise to the victorious, the overcomers, the secure outcome for those who will obey. And so we'll use this model again as we work our way through this letter to the church in Sardis. Firstly, we'll think of the introduction. Jesus introduces himself here to the church in Sardis. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Well, I suppose we should ask, what are they and why are they significant? Well, as we see back in chapter 1, the the description that we see there is when John is writing back in verse 4. And John is giving his introduction to the letters and he says to the churches, sorry. And he says in verse 4, grace and peace to you. From him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so John introduces himself as he's writing this letter to the churches with this triune welcome, this triune introduction. God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit and the way that the Spirit is talked about there is as the seven spirits before his throne. So clearly the seven spirits means the Holy Spirit, but, but why is it talked about in terms of seven? Is that a confusing message for us? Well, as we've mentioned before, throughout Revelation, indeed through much of prophetic literature and apocalyptic literature, certain numbers are used to represent an even deeper reality. And in this case, the number seven is often used throughout Revelation to, to depict and to represent completeness or fullness and so in this case, the seven here, the seven spirit is talking about the complete, the fullness of God's spirit. That's what John is talking about in chapter one, verse four and five. That's what Jesus is holding in his hand here in, three verse, in chapter three, verse one. The fullness of the spirit, the seven spirits of God. And the seven stars, well, we've heard that before. Jesus at the end of chapter one explained what the seven stars are about. In verse 20, he said, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. He also mentioned that again in in the letter to Ephesus. But we see, so Jesus is holding the the fullness of God's spirit and the seven angels of the the churches. What does this mean? What what does this represent then to us? Well, firstly, it shows the, the authority and the power of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? The one who is now dictating this message to the church, he is the head of the church. He is the one who holds the church in his hands and the spirit working with him in, in triune beauty. And so this power and authority is coming from the one who must be listened to. And so there's great power and authority here as Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars and the seven spirits of God. But secondly, there's also the reality that in holding the spirit And in holding the seven angels, and as we've mentioned before, those are messengers to the churches, maybe the leaders of the churches. But there's this idea that Jesus knows his church. He is among his church. We see that in chapter one where he is walking among the seven lampstands. But the the idea that's given here at the start of chapter three is that Jesus knows what is going on in his church. 
He, he's not standing aloof. He's not distant. He's not, he, he is right in the midst of it. We see that even fuller when we see the seven stars, or sorry, the, the, seven, um, the seven spirits being mentioned again in chapter 5, verse 6, where we see, Then I saw the Lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the living creatures. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. So, so the seven spirits are the seven eyes. What, what does this mean? This is meaning that God's spirit sees all. There is nothing that is hidden from his sight. God's spirit is sent out throughout all the world. God sees everything. He knows all by his spirit. And Jesus is now saying, I hold the spirit in my hand. And so I know the church. It is my church. I am its head. He, it is my body. And so all of this is wrapped up in the introduction. And it's important for us to recognize Jesus is saying he is Lord of his church and he knows his church. And as we'll see, that's important because that means there is no pulling the wool over Jesus's eyes when it comes to the heart of the church. He sees all the way through, not just the activity, not just the busy calendar, not just all of the things that are done. He sees the heart of the church. And so this is Jesus, the sender of this church to the, the church and the sender of this letter to the church in Sardis. He is the one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. So that's his introduction. Secondly, then, what does he know? This is who he is. What does he know? Well, this is grim reading, isn't it? The end of verse one. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wow. These are stark and sobering words, aren't they? The church in Sardis has a reputation of life, but Jesus sees to the heart of it and knows that they are dead, or as we'll see later, come to being close to dying. Clearly what's being spoken here is, is the spiritual life of the church. And Jesus sees a level way beyond what we might judge. And it does make us consider, what, what, what do we view as signs of life in a church? What do we view dare I use the term, as a successful church? What, 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 what kind of markers would we use for that? Is it a church that's, that's growing numerically? Is that a, a church that's alive? A church that's active in the community? A, a church that's got good theology? A, a church that's got a really healthy budget? Are, are all of these things what we would garner as a, and what we would think of as a church that's alive? Well, these are some things that might give a church a good reputation, aren't they? And, and, and let's not misread this. These are not bad things in and of themselves. But as Juan Sanchez really helpfully explains, the, these good desires are not the problem. We're not at all saying the churches shouldn't seek to grow or should, certainly shouldn't have good theology based on, this, on Scripture. But Juan Sanchez explains, these good desires are not the problem. The problem is trusting in these things to give us life or trusting that we are alive as a church just because we're doing them. That's the risk. It's that we, we use these external metrics to judge the internal work of God. We, we, uh, this church in Sardis must have been busy. It had a reputation of being alive. It, it, it was doing good things, but there was something desperately wrong with their heart. And that's what Jesus could see. See, the warning Jesus gives here is to help us see that we must not become prideful about or reliant upon anything that may give us a good reputation. 
we must ensure that the life that we know in this place is his life. It is his word. It is his spirit working through his word. It is his spirit working through his word, transforming his people. It is his spirit working through his word, transforming his people, accomplishing his mission in his world. It's his life. It's not good calendar engagements that we have. It is spiritual life. That's what we should see. See, the reality is that this is not, and and forgive me if I'm speaking perhaps to the folks who who are are called this place their spiritual home, but, but this is not our church in the sense that we control what's happening here and definitely not in the sense that we can take credit when things seem to be going well. That's just a way to feed pride. If God is at work among us in a way that we can visibly see, wonderful. Praise him. Don't praise anyone else. He is our head. If there is spiritual life among us, it is because he is working here. And that is good. His people are faithful here. We're praying. We're reading scripture. We're engaging with him. We're surrendering to him. Those are good, wonderful things, but they are his work. It's not something that we can take credit for. Because the minute we do, is the minute pride comes in. And the minute pride comes in, we start to die spiritually. These sound like striking words, stark words. That's the kind of language Jesus uses here. It's possibly not the kind of language you're used to me saying. But these are good warnings, loving warnings for us from our Father. As Jesus stands wanting to love and care and see growth in his church, he longs for us to know him and love him deeper. So this church in Sardis has a reputation of life, but under the surface spiritually, it's dead. And Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Strikingly, though, the the indication seems to be that the church didn't know. They seemingly weren't aware of the desperate state that they're in. Clearly, clearly there'd been some spiritual complacency that had crept in. Uh, And the idea of, of complacency leading to danger was something that that Sardis as a city knew all too well about. Sardis geographically was a really well-located place. It had a very strong wall defense. It was hard to penetrate. But on one side of the city was this steep precipice, this cliff face, that that it was judged to be, well, no one's going to climb that. That's impossible to get up. We're impenetrable from that side. And so the army often didn't even defend that side of the city. They were complacent about it because who can scale that wall? Well, not once, but twice in the city's history. Armies figured out how to do that. They scaled the, they scaled the precipice, the cliff face, and broke, broke into the city. And because the army were complacent about defending that part of it, the city was ransacked twice. And you can see the connection that Jesus is trying to make here with a city that would know that as their history. Jesus is lovingly, lovingly warning them. You, you, you might think things are going well. You, things might look wonderful. Things might feel rosy but your hearts are far from me and therefore things are not well. You're asleep at the wheel. Spiritually speaking, you're asleep at the wheel. Maybe going through the very good motions of doing church, but your hearts are cold. And so spiritually, there's death, even though it looks like life. Jesus knows the spiritual state of the church and it's grim reading. But that's not all he knows. You can see down in verse 4, 
not everything is doom and gloom. It's not all of what Jesus knows. Verse 4, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. Jesus knows that in general the church is in trouble, but there are a few signs of life. There are a few who are there faithfully seeking to devote their hearts to him. And what a comfort that would have been to those folks in that city, in that church, hearing that. And as he looks at his church, doesn't this show that Jesus not ju- doesn't just care about the body as a whole, but cares about the parts that make it up? We know that lovely, that wonderful language of the body of Christ from places like 1 Corinthians 12. And we see this, from this passage and from others that Jesus cares about each and every individual part that makes up his body. And that's a great comfort to us. Jesus doesn't just long that this place, this church, this congregation thrives for him. He, he longs that each individual here thrives for him. And what joy we will know if we do walk with him like these folks did. They have not soiled their clothes. Verse 4 says, they will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. Jesus knows the true spiritual condition of this church in Sardis. Most of it is grim reading, yet there's signs of hope. And because of what he knows, he then calls them to action. He then calls them to action. As we think about the therefore. Let's think about what it is that Jesus instructs this church to do. And we see this in verse 2 in the first half of verse 3. Let me read those verses with us. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Firstly, what we see here is the church needs to wake up. It's as if the church has been sleepwalking in the comfort of their good reputation. But Jesus shakes them, pleads with them, wake up. You've no reason to feel comfortable because your spiritual life is not dependent on your reputation. Your spiritual life is dependent on your heart with me, Jesus is saying. Wake up. And what does it mean to wake up? Well, one commentator, James Hamilton, very helpfully explained that it's about focusing back to Jesus. These are Hamilton's words. To wake up means to recognize Jesus is bigger than anything you fear. It means recognizing that he is better than anything that pleases you. It means knowing that you have, if you have him, you have everything you need. In essence, to wake up means that the church must refocus on Christ and on how full and complete he is. The, the, the full and complete life that he came to give. The reality that if we have him, we need nothing else. But they must wake up and see that rather than relying on the good reputation that they got for themselves, they must trust in their Savior again. Wake up, therefore. Secondly, they must strengthen what remains and is about to die. And again, we see a glimmer of hope here that there's a few, as we saw in verse 4, there's a few who have remained faithful. There's a flicker of spiritual life in this church and the story isn't over. And so by, by his grace and in his mercy, Jesus calls them to fan into flame again. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. It's not dead yet. It's not over yet. Strengthen what remains. But, but how are they to do that? How are they to fan that into flame again? What, how are they to strengthen that faithful remnant? And, and, and for those of us who feel the need of God's strengthening hand, those of us who feel the need of that fanning of our spiritual flame, which we used to remember burning so brightly and maybe is flickering now, about to be extinguished. What are we to do? How are we to strengthen? Well, this is the third thing. 
that we see in verse 3. Remember what you received and heard and hold it fast. Remember what you received and heard. This is, this is Jesus speaking about the gospel. Remember what you received and heard. Remember the good news of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Remember the gospel. Christian, remember the gospel. But why do we need to remember? Isn't the gospel the message that brought us salvation? Back when we we put our trust in him, is that not the gospel? Why do we need to continue to remember if we want to grow in him? Well, yes, of course, the gospel is the message by which we know salvation, absolutely. But the Christian life only begins then. The New Testament talks about being brought into new life, new birth. This is spiritual life with Jesus only begins at our moment of conversion. And then we grow in him as he continues to work in us. And for that, we need his gospel. We need the good news. Because Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross in our place, his forgiving of our sin, his rescuing us from eternal punishment, we need to remember that daily because it's a reminder of his grace. It's a reminder of his holiness. It's a reminder of his love. It's a reminder of his will for our lives to be devoted to him. And, and all of that is significant and important. We need to remember his grace. You see, the, the call to remember here to the church in Sardis comes, at the end of, comes after the end of chapter 2, or verse 2, sorry. Jesus said, For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God, or incomplete, why were these deeds incomplete? What does that mean? Well, in the sight of God, the, the one whose opinion is the only one that matters, the deeds of this church, as impressive as they may have been, as good as they may have been, they're, they're unfinished. Well, what would have completed them then? What, why, why does God see them as unfinished? Well, throughout Scripture, from the Old Testament law, through the prophets, through Jesus' teaching, the New Testament letters, consistently, time and time again, God makes it clear the true and genuine belief leads to a transformed life. Faith and deeds are inseparable. There's often a tendency to lean more on one side than the other. But scripture would show there is no seesaw to balance. It isn't an either or. It is both and because a deep devotion to God is worked out in an obedient life. Faith and deeds go together. They're not separate things. Having faith leads to deeds. Deeds are the result of faith. Faith matters. Deeds matter. Yes, but the two go hand in hand because what matters is a deep devotion to God which is outworked in an obedient life. Yet yet it seems that the church in Sardis here may have been very good at their deeds, but they're incomplete. They're unfinished because their hearts were not right. It wasn't the outworking of a devotion to Jesus. And so in response to that, Jesus says, remember the gospel and hold it fast. And what is the gospel? It's the message of grace. It's the message that Jesus has done all that is needed for our salvation. All that is needed for our eternal security in him. Everything has been complete. It is finished, Jesus cried from the cross. And so we cannot add to our salvation by our deeds. We cannot earn our way into heaven by doing things that are good. Yet it seems that this church in Sardis may have been trying to rely on the reputation of good deeds, which has actually rendered them spiritually at death's door. 
because their hearts were not in it. They might have been doing really good things, but they weren't the motivation, or they weren't the outworking of genuine faith. And so the call to this church is to remember the gospel. Remember and hold it fast. Do not sway from the reality that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And allow that wonderful message of salvation to transform your life and propel you into what Ephesians 2.10 says. is the good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. But remember, those good works are the result of grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. That is how you're saved. So then, verse 10 comes, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There are gospel good works to do, absolutely. And we do them because we have received mercy and grace. Because our eternity is secure, because we have been saved, we go and do. It's a response, it's a reaction, and it's the only one that Jesus wants. See, the deeds of the church in Sardis may have been incomplete because they weren't the outworking of a genuine heart's desire to serve and respond to the gospel. And so, Jesus' words to them is, remember it and hold it fast. Don't let go. Remember and hold it fast. And the very end of the very end of that sentence at the start of verse three is remember what you've received and heard, hold it fast and repent. Let's not skip over the need that many of us may need to hear this morning that we need to repent. We must confess our complacency in obedience. We must confess and repent of our distraction from God's mission that He's called us to. We must confess of our compromising of sin, of our toleration of falsehood, as we've seen in so many of the letters that have led us to this week. We must repent of that reliance on our reputation, what we hope others think of us. We must repent. And what is repentance? It's turning away from that and turning to Jesus' better path. Repent. This, therefore, is what the church must do. And indeed, it's what all of us who are in need of spiritual resuscitation need to do. Need to wake up, strengthen what remains before it dies. Remember the gospel, hold it fast, repent. And very briefly then, why is this such a necessary message? Well, this is the because. And we see it in the second half of verse three. But if you do not wake up, Jesus said, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. This is a stark warning of judgment from Jesus. This imagery of a thief coming has been used throughout the New Testament and by Jesus himself to speak of the the preparedness that we need for his second coming. That we must not be asleep when he comes. We must be active, alive, awake, spiritually ready for Jesus to return. And we we should grasp the severity of this warning. And and allow the starkness of it to shake us from any spiritual slumber that we might be in. There's a a judgment coming. Our Lord, the head of the church, is coming back. And, And will he find us asleep at the wheel? Or will he find us awake, alert, serving him wholeheartedly, devoted to him fully? That's the challenge. And not only 
should we hear this warning because of the punishment that may come if we don't? But we also need to hear this warning because of the promise that he gives for faithfulness. Look at the promise in verse 5. To the, the one who is victorious will, like them, that's speaking of the faithful ones in verse 4, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. I, th- I think we need to let that imagery sink in. Jesus says, for those who are faithful, he will never blot out our names from the book of life. We will enter eternity with him. But he will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. It's an incredible statement. And I I don't in any way want to play poetic license here. But Jesus is saying that as we stand at the gates of heaven, he will say to his father, this person is mine. It's a wonderful, comforting, joyous image. Just like he said of the people in verse 4, they are worthy. They will walk with me dressed in white. This is the eternal security. This is the eternal future that awaits all of us who are faithful. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This should excite our hearts and wake us up if we need it. I love how the ESV actually says this. I will confess his name before my father and his angels. Talk about a reputation to long for. That name that I want, that name that is in the book of life, that name that Jesus will say to his father on the day, tomorrow. Jesus, our Lord and King and Savior, would speak our names to his father, calling us his own, welcoming us into that eternal presence. It's just like what we read in Matthew 25, isn't it? Welcome, good and faithful servant. As we come to a close, reputation matters. And as a Christian, my individual reputation matters because it reflects the Savior that I follow. As as a gathered church here, our reputation matters because it reflects the Savior who is our head. But as important as reputation is, it is never the end goal or should never be. We must not seek the reputation more than we seek our Savior. We must never seek our reputation more than we seek our Savior. The church in Sardis was active and well thought of, but in the eyes of the only one that mattered, they were dead. Yet in his grace and in his love, he called them to repent. He called them to remember the gospel. He called them to wake up. He called them to hold fast to the message of life. And that life that he called them into was life fueled by the Spirit. Life that was response to his grace and his mercy. And may that be a life that we know too. I wonder what Jesus would say of us as his church here. May we hear his voice, know him well, surrender ourselves to him so that he would say to us, you are alive because you're my people. And may he work in us and through us mightily to draw hundreds of people to him so that they would know his saving grace 
And whether that's here in Gilnahirk and Braniel, and whether that's in, in two weeks' time as the marquee is up and we have 80 or 90 children in there, whether that's as Harry and Hannah go and represent us in London, whatever it is, may God's name go out from this place as his people serve him well. And may he protect us from any sense of pride that may come as he is at work in us. That we might start to take credit for that. Oh, may we never do. Let's, let's pray to this wonderful, saving, loving Father. Our Lord, we thank you for your word to us. Thank you, Father, that your word is good. It is life-giving. And Lord, at times it is challenging. And at times, Father, we need to hear your rebuke to come to us and say, wake up. Lord, for those of us who, who are in that sense of needing a, a jolt of, of spiritual resuscitation because we may be doing all the right things, yet our hearts have grown cold, Father, may we hear your call to wake up. May we see your wonderful hand extended to us to strengthen us, to remind us of the gospel, and may we hold it firm. Thank you, Father, that you are head of the church. Lord, we want to be a, a local congregation here, an expression of your global church that, that is faithful, that is serving you, that is uh, uh, obedient to what you're teaching and leading us into. So would you help us, Father, to have hearts that are moldable by you. May you help us to have a humble spirit before you and with one another. And Jesus, may you continue to move among us, we pray. By your spirit, would you bring new life? And spirit, would you move among us, molding us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ so that we would be more faithful, more bold as we seek to witness for you wherever you've placed us. We pray that your name, Father, would ring out from this place, corporately as we gather and individually as we scatter, that your name would be written over all of our lives. Thank you for the promise of, of the eternal security we have. Thank you for saving us through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in us and among us for your glory, your name.